Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's the 29th of October and you've joined us at Give the People What They Want, brought to you by your favorite um, news portal, uh, People's Dispatch. That's peoplesdispatch.org. We have Zoe here with us from People's Dispatch. Prashant will be joining later. If he is able to leave his assignment and rush back to the studio to join us, because after all, I want you to know that all three of us, I'm from Globetrotter, Vijay, uh, all three of us are practicing journalists. And so we're off there in the field sometimes. We're not anchors sitting in the studio um, waiting to you know, tell you a story. We're actually in the middle of things. And that's where Prashant is. He is right now in the middle of of reporting a story. He should be back with us soon. Well, um, it's the 29th of October. We're at the threshold of COP26 to be held in Glasgow. Um, big debates breaking out already. What are the character of the debates? The main countries that seem to uh, decide that they are the you know rulers of the world, the so-called G20. 20 countries, friends, out of 193 will meet over the weekend in anticipation of COP26 in Glasgow. They're going to make some decisions over there. By the way, by their own accounting, the G20 countries account for 80% of the world's carbon emissions. 80% of the world's carbon emissions from the G20 countries. Um, but they're loath to actually agree on an agenda. Issues, for instance, of net zero emissions, issues, for instance, of deforest, uh, deforestation, issues, for instance, of transforming the nature of, of transportation networks, supply chains, and so on, just not on the agenda. Already, battle lines have hardened. Uh, Western countries are demanding that China and India cut uh, coal-fired uh, coal plants, that China and India make deep cuts in carbon and so on. Um, that's the position of the United States, which is going to arrive in Glasgow with about a dozen cabinet members, Joe Biden in the lead, uh, pushing an agenda, trying to say that it's China and India um, that are being uh, stubborn and not accepting, uh, signing the dot and line of surrender uh, uh, to development. On the other side, Countries like China and India are saying, look, it's all very well for you to talk about us cutting carbon. But what about you who have exhausted your share of the carbon budget? What about you making deep cuts and going to net zero, you know, not by 2060 or not even by 2050, not even by 2030. But what about next year? Um, it's on the table, friends. It's seriously on the table. United States arrives in Glasgow not sure if there's actually any um, leg to stand on because Mr. Biden, who put a lot of, of, of his eggs into the basket of infrastructure, has not been able to advance his infrastructure bill, which would have carried uh, some elements of the great transition away from carbon emissions. There would have been elements of the infrastructure that stuck one trillion, two trillion, three trillion. It's just money, folks. It's a a choice between the amount of money we're willing to spend and the destruction of the planet seems like the US Congress not willing to have a serious discussion about this. It's going to be clear 
at COP in Glasgow, nothing significant is going to happen. But I don't want to leave you uh, merely with a sense that nothing is going to happen because I want to remind you, the previous COP was held in Paris in 2015. The COPs are to be held every five years. It's delayed this year because of the pandemic. In 2015, at the Paris COP, an agreement was signed. But at Paris, I well remember the main powers, mostly Western powers, but also Japan, refused to accept even the concept of net zero. Refused to accept the concept of net zero. Today, as a consequence of two things. One, much better science, a series of UN reports, the international, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has produced superb reports saying, look, it's not enough to talk about keep a warming below two degrees Celsius. That's the language of the Paris Agreement. Keep warming below two degrees Celsius. Um, the IPCC, the inter, inter, I keep trying to say interplanetary, but what I mean is intergovernmental panel in climate change. The IPCC says, no, it must remain near 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. Cap it at that, not 2.7 degrees Celsius. That's catastrophic. Um, the science has made a difference. It has made an impact. There is now a broad movement built in most of our countries based on the science. That's the second reason the governments no longer can just dismiss net zero. Um, the science has helped give power to movements and COP will be filled with the movements. Uh, Zoe and I will both be reporting from Glasgow. We'll be talking to people in the movements. Um, we'll be talking to some scientists. We're trying to understand what is it that prevents governments from delivering a proper agreement? Is it merely money? Is it merely the fact that they feel that a agenda toward uh, climate sanity is going to affect the bottom line for the big corporations? Is that it? Well, it's something that we'll be investigating, no doubt looking carefully uh, at. Well, Zoe, um, let's move away from COP. I know you and I are going to do lots of stories about COP. We've been mugging up, reading IPCC reports. I, I mean, you know, I'm not a scientist and nor are you, but boy, we reporters, we become experts overnight because we have to really study hard. Some parts of the world you don't need to study. You don't need to study Ecuador. You know that stuff like the back of your hand. What's happening in Ecuador? Well, I wouldn't go that far. But, uh, <laughs> um, well, there's another series of, you know, mass protests in Ecuador. Um, if, you know, our viewers remember two years ago, there were historic protests uh, called the October um, uprisings where the people of Ecuador took to the streets um, to reject en masse um, these the increase in price of fuel in the country, as well as other sets of neoliberal measures that the government of, at this point, Lenin Moreno had imposed because of an agreement with the International Monetary Fund. Um, and they signed this, you know, massive loan and proceeded to, you know, cut education, cut health care. You know the script. We've seen it in many countries. And so this led to these mass protests that took place over 10 days uh, the indigenous movements uh, from the different regions of Ecuador converged on Quito. Um, students were in the streets, uh, unions, and they were all, you know, coming together in these mass protests to demand, you know, um, the re reverting back the uh, increase in fuel prices along with other measures. Um, these protests were also met with a lot of heavy repression in the time in 2019. 
Um, and they really marked um, a before and after of uh, you know recent Ecuadorian history. They also gave rise to similar um, you know anti neoliberal protests across the continent. We saw in the same time Chile, Colombia, and Haiti. There were also similar protests. So these are you know really key. And now two years later, we're seeing movements take to the streets again, and for very similar demand uh, to demand that the fuel prices in the country not be raised. And so Ecuador is one of the many countries in Latin America um, that actually uses the dollar as their currency um, because um, you know, of the economic crisis at the end of the 90s. Um, they were forced to dollarize their economy. Um, and so you know, currently, uh, the fuel prices were raised by um, Lenny Moreno. Guillermo Lasso, who was uh, sworn in, um, you know, in this year, Many people feared he was going to be a continuation of the same neoliberal policies of Lenin Moreno, of anti-people policies, making the people pay for the crisis. Uh, Ecuador has also been kind of in a tailspin of economic crisis since Lenin Moreno. Um, and essentially this week he decided to uh, lift the measure that Lenin Moreno had imposed of uh, increasing fuel prices, but then fix the fuel prices at an incredibly high rate. And so, you know, this is obviously met with a lot of rejection from social movements just to give um, the actual numbers. Regular gasoline is fixed at $2.55 and diesel at $1.90. And so imagine, this is expensive. This is in dollar prices. This is expensive even for the United States. And in Ecuador, of course, minimum wages are much lower. And what the, you know, movements in Ecuador have analyzed is that when you increase fuel prices, you're increasing the cost of living across the board prices of food increase, prices of transporting everyday goods is, uh, you know, affected by this. So this is really hitting, first and foremost, the working classes, the marginalized sectors. And so, you know, in his Ecuadorian tradition of, you know, not taking anything from the government sitting down, they, of course, have taken to the streets, been on national strike for the past two days. Um, the largest indigenous organization in the country, the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities, has called for permanent assemblies to discuss a way forward to resist these measures and continue their resistance. You know, Zoe, you put uh, the focus on the fuel prices, which is, you know, uh, basically catapulted people onto the street. Fuel prices, a key element in so many protest movements. Prashant, earlier this year in June and July, we saw diesel prices in Sudan double. Uh, fuel price produced a serious crisis in that country. Nothing compared to what happened this week when the military decided to take over. Prashant, lead us into the events in Sudan. Right, Vijay. It's, uh, it's one of the most ironic things, this coup, considering the fact that the leader, General Abdul Fattah Burhan, conducted a coup against a system which he was heading. So uh, the fact is that over the past, <clears throat> over the past two years since the 2019, there has been a transitional government in Sudan. And we do know that earlier there was a mass protest. The longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir was overthrown. The military in 2019, the military and the civilian authorities, certain sections of the civilian party struck a deal. And, uh, you know, there was something called the transitional government that is formed and the sovereignty council. So Burhan was heading the sovereignty council. And the important thing to note is that he had to give up that position next month. So in November 2021, he was set to be replaced by a civilian authority. And the military clearly had been building up to this because in September we saw some, you know, attempts at a coup. We saw at least one definite attempt, one attempt whereby soldiers were withdrawn from a key government building. At that point, of course, Burhan came online and said that 
the civilians were to blame for you know reducing the trust in the military for that matter later there was a section of protesters who sort of appeared and demanded that the military take over so they started, they started doing a sit in before the school and all this culminates in october 25th where the military arrests civilian leaders as usual they take the prime minister abdullah hamdok in custody try to get him to endorse the coup and he refuses so he's arrested for two days but what has now happened is that the battle lines have become clearer and uh, if uh, if you have been following people's dispatch coverage of the issues in sudan you would know especially the stories written by a colleague pavan that over the past two years the sections of protesters the most radical section of protesters were always aware of this possibility and you know they were the ones who said that the uh, omar al bashir was overthrown in 2019 but the sudanese revolution is not over yet because to take it to its logical conclusion the military needs to be moved out of positions of authority and it must be a completely civilian led government they were very careful they were very worried when sections of the civilian political parties struck this deal with the military and even a few days before the coup there was a march of millions in uh, across the country with around 1 million participants participating in khartoum where exactly this demand was made that the civilian rule should be restored a complete civilian rule so while the international community for whom for instance the sudanese military is convenient because they signed the deal with israel so they issued their usual condemnations they threatened financial sanctions but they are fine with this transitional authority coming back to power you know a split uh, system so to speak but i think the protesters on the street the left sections the progressive sections the trade unions they are very determined that the only solution is for complete civilian control and that is what the protest is going on on october 30th there is another major march that's scheduled there in sudan uh, you know posters have gone out internet internet connection is difficult but still large scale mobilizations are expected to happen so uh, i think the story of the coup is not over yet and it'll be much easier for the, it is easier for the military to do the coup than to maintain power so very important country to watch out in the coming days Prashant, by the way, has the African Union made any statement about the this coup? I haven't seen anything. Yes, the African Union has suspended Sudan's membership, as far as I last checked. But it's a larger problem that the African Union itself has been reduced to a bit of, you know, it's not really a most more, very powerful entity now nowadays, considering that it has no major power, so to speak. So yes, in principle, they have acted, but nonetheless. question remains it is interesting how these things happen i mean here's a, a a process that was has been quite difficult for the people because uh, it seems that this transitional period hasn't afforded the people uh, you know any hope uh, you got the pandemic of course you've got uh, as we said earlier the fuel prices doubling you know people of sudan facing a crisis earlier i talked prashant about the cop 26 you know african countries 54 of them they produce only 5% less than 5% of the world's um, carbon emissions 80% produced by the g20 countries african continent less than 5% you know uh, there's a lot of development needed in a place like sudan none of these governments seem capable of of putting that at the front meanwhile meanwhile um you know you're listening to give the people what they want now i understand uh, you will believe that this is not exactly what you want you want hopeful stories you don't want stories like this look at what we've had cop 26 ecuador fuel crisis and protests 
Sudan military coup. But underneath each of these stories are stories of people standing up. At COP26, there will be tens of thousands of people at the People's March, at the People's Tribunal and so on, arguing for a better way forward. In Ecuador, there are people on the streets, people inside parliament standing up and saying, we want to be counted, we have a different opinion. And in Sudan, it's not that the coup has taken place and people are lying down flat. Uh, as Prashant said, on the 30th, there'll be another protest. Give the people what they want. What the people want is a better world, a different world, it seems like that's what we as reporters keep running up against meanwhile inside the halls of the u.s congress wow that's a showstopper just that line inside the halls of the u.s congress um you know the chief of staff of the uh, joint chiefs uh, his name is mark milley general mark milley he had earlier made news when he told uh, adam costa and um and you know uh, woodward about uh, how he had called up his Chinese counterparts to prevent war. Well, this time he sat in front of um, the Congress people and he talked about the so-called hypersonic missile that the Chinese have fired. In fact, uh, the Chinese had tested their hypersonic missile. Well, direct quote from General Mark Milley. I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that, he said. Now, the reference, Sputnik, friends, is when the Soviets sent a satellite into space, setting in motion in, in, in immense panic in the United States, which allowed military spending to escalate even further, even greater military spending. Just to be clear, before this show, I called up two experts uh, who work in the arena of, um, of missiles, missile and missile technology, I asked them, what's the new thing with the hypersonic cruise missile? They said, listen, an intercontinental ballistic missile goes at 20 times the speed of sound. It's incredibly dangerous missile. There's nothing different about a hypersonic cruise missile. It's just that the name is more scary. And when they say it's a Sputnik moment, it's terrifying to people. In fact, what the Chinese have tested is nothing that the other main military powers, United States, Russians and others, it's not that different from what they have. Um, and uh, this is not going to change, in a sense, the, the detente. Uh, that functions between the United States and China because the Chinese are not going to be foolish enough to use a hypersonic cruise missile because then they will get obliterated because the United States has a much greater capacity. And secondly, this is now a quote from the US Pentagon's own reports. The US Pentagon acknowledges that China has a no first strike policy, which means China has said that it will not attack another country with nuclear weapons unless it is attacked with nuclear weapons. That's called a no first strike policy. China has an articulated no first strike policy. United States does not have one. This was uh, acknowledged by the Pentagon. Now, it's very interesting that while he was talking about all this stuff, General Mark Milley then said, we're going to have to adjust our military going forward. We're going to have to adjust our military going forward. This smells like trillions of dollars uh, that the US military wants. Those trillions of dollars that Biden is trying to get into his civilian infrastructure bill. Guns or butter? Not clear. In the United States, the history has shown more guns, less butter. 
Uh, I hope very much for the sake of the planet that the people in the United States are going to fight tooth and nail for more butter, less guns. Prashant Zoe, that's, I suppose, um, you know, that's the story of stories. Uh, our other stories are basically footnotes to that story. Uh, fuel prices doubling, if there was more money towards green transition, we wouldn't have to worry about diesel pricing. But no, we're going to have better missiles and less public transportation that doesn't require diesel. Um, moving on, let's go now back to South America. Series of elections. What will these elections be worth if there's a nuclear war, Zoe? But let's not get too bleak. Uh, take us into the list of elections. Latin America keeps, they seem to have so many elections. Does South America have more elections than the rest of the planet? Venezuela definitely has more elections than the rest of any other country, um, which is a testament in many ways to their strong democratic process. They've had over over 25 electoral processes since uh, 1999, which is impressive. Um, they're one of the countries that has uh, elections coming up in November. Um, but to do it more chronologically, systematically, just to give people kind of a preview of what we can be looking forward to in November, um, November 7th, general elections in Nicaragua, these are going to be very crucial. Um, there's been a lot of ominous comments, which I think we've discussed on this show before. Um, the U.S. is kind of gearing up to respond in the way that they know how to respond, which is with, you know, increasing sanctions, um, you know, increasing uh, political isolation of Nicaragua. Um, it seems like it's trying to take it to the next phase um, because, you know, it's uh, the government, you know, the ticket of Daniel Ortega of the Frente Sandinista is, you know, slated to win these elections just because of their you know, enormous popularity. It's um, been one of the most economically stable countries in the region, um, you know, just generally not in chaos as its neighboring countries are. People are content with the government. And so it's, you know, the U.S. knows this and that's why they're, you know, preparing to respond with sanctions and with other measures, um, you know, likely to say that these elections are um, fraudulent. Um, they have really stuck to the campaign of the rest of these you know, opposition candidates, which, again, we spoke about on the show, it's not, um, they're not just some opposition candidates. They have, you know, links to, um, you know, real criminal charges. Um, but this is how the U.S. has painted it. That's something to watch out for. November 7th, we'll be following that, of course. Uh, November 21st, regional and local elections in Venezuela. These are historic as well, because since 2015, the far-right opposition, which we, you know, has... Juan Guaido has emerged as kind of the figurehead of this far-right opposition. They have not participated in any elections since 2015 um, because of the dialogue process that has been going on in Mexico, which was recently put on hold because of the extradition or kidnapping of Alex Saab. They had agreed to participate in this upcoming electoral process. It's likely that will participate. And hopefully uh, with, you know, this renewed legitimization of uh, the electoral processes in Venezuela, it could lead to the lessening of some of the very brutal uh, economic measures that the U.S. has imposed on Venezuela, some of the sanctions that it has against its financial markets, its financial transactions, the oil industry. Hopefully this will be a turning point, make the conditions of life a little more bearable for Venezuelans. This is really key, even though they're just, you know, they're regional and local elections, but you know, the, the weight of the participation of the opposition is important. On the same day, presidential elections in Chile, 
Uh, obviously, VJU were just there and wrote a great piece speaking to some of these, uh, you know, candidates and people who are, you know, participating in this new wave of uh, of politics in Chile. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the article Chile is the, the you know the home ground of where uh, neoliberal neoliberalism was born, and it seeks to be the place where it will be, you know, put to rest. Um, and so we're seeing a resurgence of the left. However, uh, in the latest polling, the far right candidate cast has come out uh, ahead of Boric. So it remains to be seen. I think it's going to be a tight race. Either way, there's going to be a second round in December, but we'll see how, um, you know, these candidates line up in this first round on November 21st. Uh, the following weekend, November 28th, it's, it's a whirlwind, but I just want to make sure everyone is up to speed, knowing what to follow in November. It can get crazy. Uh, on November 28th, Honduras has elections uh, really crucial four years ago. Massive electoral fraud committed to put Juan Orlando Hernandez in presidency once again. He is, you know, in some words, uh, he has driven the country into economic crisis social crisis, political crisis, um, you know, complete lack of legitimacy. We've seen enormous increase in the number of people fleeing Honduras because of these uh, horrible socioeconomic conditions that Juan Orlando Hernandez has himself, you know, contributed in creating. He's also deeply linked to drug trafficking in the country. This will be really crucial. The left is polling 17 points ahead of the right-wing candidate from the National Party, um, will they commit electoral fraud like they did in 2017? It's remained to be seen. And then also one last point for November Latin America, since we're talking about it, the U.S.-backed protests in Cuba on November 15th, also crucial as part of this regional strategy of the U.S. to maintain its grip on the region. As we know, uh, these are insidious protests with very clear U.S. backing and the actors that are promoting them have clear political aims to destabilize the country and push their agenda. So things to look out for in November. It's a full calendar, all the way from Cuba down to Chile, a full calendar. Meanwhile, the man who we admire because he was able to bring us an enormous amount of material about various forms of war crimes, his health is deteriorating, CIA plots to kill him, uh, Prashant, as our last story, take us to our friend Julian Assange sitting in Belmarsh prison. How is the extradition going? Right, Vijay. What we saw was uh, a, a bit of a spectacle which is difficult to explain in the sense that it was an appeal by the United States, of course, British lawyers, supported by the United States, representing the United States against the January verdict which had refused his extradition. Now, uh, one would assume that when somebody's extradition is refused, that person would be let go. Surprisingly, in Julian Assange's case, the judge declared that pending appeals, he should still be in uh, prison, which made absolutely no sense at all. But nonetheless, here we are so many months after, you know, it's uh, October now and the prosecution presenting exactly the same arguments as before, some of them even more egregious, so to speak, uh, in terms of declaring that, you know, he would be treated uh, they, basically, most of their arguments consisted of trying to say that you know, Assange was not a suicide risk because you know there was the psychiatrist who, given that evaluation, may not have done X, Y, and Z, and that Assange would be treated well in a prison that he may not he may not get a long life sentence. So all of these arguments continuously presented by the prosecution to basically 
give the impression of the United States being a nice place for people to be in jail, which is, uh, you know, which is really absurd for multiple reasons. But more than that, fundamentally, yet again, uh, the prosecution refusing to acknowledge the fact that he's a journalist, which is what Assange's colleague said that Assange is being persecuted. He's being prosecuted for the crime of being a journalist. And it's a statement, I think, that media organizations, people from the press have stressed from day one. This is not a trial of espionage. This is a, this is a political trial. This is a trial against journalism. So, uh, of course, the uh, defense bringing out the important point you mentioned, which is that in 2017, the CIA was discussing ways to either kill or kidnap Assange, which renders any kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a trial now by the U.S. likely suspect because we, what the U.S. now is saying that we're going to be treating him safely, you know, the conditions are not as bad as you think, etc., etc. But these revelations recently showed that as just just three years ago, four years ago, they were planning to kill him. So this alone should be reason for any court to automatically refuse the extradition plea. So we need to see what the High Court of Justice in the United Kingdom decides. But I think for people who are protesting outside, for journalists across the world, the answer is very clear that uh, there is no question that Assange has to be released immediately, that he has to be exonerated. And the fact that what he is, the contributions he has made to journalism need to be recognized for what they are. So it's, a, it's maybe a sad ending to the episode, but it's a sorry state in a world where someone who has done uh, such exemplary journalism is being prosecuted for espionage. So that's a very sad commentary on the world. Well, Prashant and Zoe are from People's Dispatch. Peoplesdispatch.org has been covering the Assange story from day one. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Prashant, Zoe and I are journalists, three of us. Um, and therefore, we, on behalf of Give the People What They Want, send our solidarity to our fellow journalist Julian Assange, sitting in Belmarsh prison, a political prisoner, a journalist who has been muzzled. Uh, you've been with us on October 29th. We'll be back in November to see you. Zoe and I will be in Glasgow at COP. Prashant will be on the beat, which is why he was a little late today, getting the stories in to you fresh, fresh as a fresh chapati. See you next week. We shall overcome. We shall overcome.